I have Kendall Martinez right. She was formerly a House candidate for the Missouri 5th House District. How are you today? I'm doing well. You know, enjoying this nice, fresh air in a good area of health and everything. So, yeah. (laughs) It's gorgeous where I'm at. It's beautiful. It's going to be 80 degrees later this week. It's been so hot where I am in southeastern Virginia. It's just been so hot. It's been like in the 90, 95. Out here, including the humidity, it feels like it's 100, 105. So it's wild. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yes, yes. So yeah, so the last few months have been interesting in terms of politics. You know, last time we spoke, Build Back Better still had a chance of passing the House in terms Mm -hmm. of like being coupled with the bipartisan infrastructure framework, the BIF, it was still coupled at that time with Build Back Better. There was hope that that we could be able to get something like that passed. And it just doesn't seem that that's going to happen now. Basically, like maybe three or four days before, maybe a week before Christmas, I think it was maybe December 18th or so, Joe Manchin came out on like Mm -hmm. a Friday and went on Fox News and was telling the entirety of the world and the United States, hey, Joe Biden, you remember that promise that I made you that I was going to vote for Build Back Better? Well, I lied and I'm not supporting that and I'm not going to support the bill. And since you guys already uncoupled the Biff and Build Back Better, you know, I'm not voting for Build Back Better because there's no reason for me to do so. So Gottheimer and the conservatives mm-hmm. in the House got what they wanted, and Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema and the Republicans got what they wanted in the Senate, which is basically mm-hmm. nothing but subsidies for private industry and being able to say, yeah, we did that too. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah, we did infrastructure too. They wanted to play that game, and it seems that they may actually be successful in that. I did want to get your take on that because a a lot of what Build Back Better was going to be was infrastructure for a lot of the middle of the country. The original Build Back Better in terms of three and a half trillion dollar bill, a lot of money made it in there for local community health centers and hospitals. That was really a big part of what Bernie Sanders introduced in ARPA was for those community health centers and rural hospitals. And especially since COVID occurred and now with monkeypox beginning to spread not just in the LGBT community, but beginning to seep out into the rest of society, it's kind of disturbing the fact that that bill didn't get passed. So I just want to like your general feel on, uh, on, on that not being able to pass, seeing as you're a, um, you know, a Southern progressive Democrat. Honestly, it was disappointing, but at the same time, it was, I kind of, in a way, expected to, because especially with mansion and cinema they're more they're like at the biggest center area in terms of political leanings because they represent in the senate not only cater to the republican base but they also cater to in a way to the democrat base but the in retrospect what was very disappointing overall was the fact that especially in not only in the Midwest, but also in various several Southern states, their infrastructure in terms of additional accessibility to medical facilities has been severely impacted, especially these last few years with COVID and now with the surge of monkeypox virus, we're seeing 
a high amount of individuals, especially in rural communities, who do not have those means of accessibility to reaching out for medical care and also other resources that will help uplift not only within that community, but other surrounding communities that do not have those means of accessibility. Another area that is very concerning is the fact that there was an appropriations portion of that bill that would essentially elevate not only the middle class, but also uh, help elevate and move the lower class into an area where various provisions in terms of, of health insurance through the Affordable Care Act was going to be instituted to where they could go to other resources that are closer, which was at the time non-existent, and that was also cut. And that's very serious, too, because if you look into some of the data in terms of individuals who are able to carry fetuses, we go into that scope of how certain populations are disenfranchised in terms of gaining that appropriate reproductive health means during pregnancy and after pregnancy. And then also look into the basis of, in terms of various other health issues such as diabetes, such as cancer, heart disease, and how those provisions was also, was supposed to be added and would gave those individuals elevated boost to any that accessibility to better health care. Overall, I think the messaging in terms of what we can do to move forward is we all know that with the midterms coming up, it's going to be very, very contentious because we see on the Republican side that that fight of regaining that majority rule, especially in the Senate where it is, it is exactly 50-50. And so right now, the framework on the Republican side is making sure that they can take siege and have the leadership uh, under Senator McConnell, as well as in the House, really getting gaining that additional momentum with removing Speaker Pelosi from the Speaker's diet and having Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House. I think that's something that they are actively strategizing and wanting to do. And it takes right now in terms of the Democratic side, we have to really stand firm and hold individuals in the democratic realm to voting not only for these pieces of legislation, but also having them to push forth even amendments or other pieces of legislation that really will help uplift not only our citizens, but also really help boost not only the economy, but also the infrastructure that is currently still in disrepair. And that's really the thing that always gets me. And it's the reason why I really (coughs) like your perspective is because you live in that flyover part of the country. That part of the country that's sort of seen as an afterthought to many Democrats, and especially with the Dobbs v. Jackson ruling in terms of overturning Roe v. Wade, which was a 5-4 decision versus the 6-3 mm-hmm. decision, which was to up the 15-week Mississippi abortion ban. In light of that, the Democratic Party was just sort of elated and like, okay, well, yeah, it's... It isn't a constitutional right anymore, so it's going to be a states' right issue, which means that now we get to turn out more people. You have to vote for us, because if not, 
that means that you're going to lose your rights to be able to control your own body. And isn't that great? And it's just like, that's, it, that is such, so the wrong messaging and like an absolutely terrible way to look at that. And in a way they agree with Republicans that they think it should be a state's right issue. They state publicly for the last 50 years since 1973 that somehow like, no, this should be a constitutional right, but they've done virtually nothing in 50 there, years. Yeah, there has that. been, and the crazy thing is over the last 50 plus years since before the Dobbs decision, United States Congress only introduced language that would solidify that constitutional right to abortion only three times. Once in the 1980s, uh, once in the 90s, and again in the early, early 2000s during, during the Bush administration. Uh, those three times, that piece of legislation did not pass due to that contentious area of it should be up to the state's discretions to uphold this, the then Roe versus Wade Supreme Court decision. Which in Missouri, when the Dobbs versus Jackson ruling was finalized, the attorney general, as well as the governor of Missouri, they made sure we had a trigger law that solidified House B-126, the original, the bill that was passed in 2019 that would prohibit abortions upwards of eight weeks. And even in cases of rape and incest, they instituted that within five minutes of that ruling. And Missouri essentially became the first state in the United States to have an effective abortion law prohibiting abortion services to individuals within the state, as well as with this past legislative session, uh, State Representative Mary Elizabeth Coleman, uh, she drafted and almost was successful of passing another anti-abortion law that will essentially uh, have community members, various sectors of the community, get up to individuals who are trying to gain that access to abortion. And luckily, that piece of legislation failed once session was completed. But there is talks of even more heinous provisions orchestrated by not only the super- conservative area in the Republican Party, but also in other the areas in, within that party that would further disenfranchise individuals of their right to abortion, as well as making additional barriers towards reproductive health. That push on Dobbs v. Jackson, and especially living in that part of the country, all of these Republicans will come out and the conservative narrative is that a lot of these issues should be quote unquote states rights. And the way that that's being accomplished is that the Democrats don't have a 50 state strategy. And it seems now that they're going to have to have a 50 state strategy. Like I've had this argument with Ryan Grimm, which is Ryan Grimm has published many pieces, at least two on the nonprofit industrial complex in terms of political action groups that get together looking to push on things from drunk driving to stop smoking to reproductive health care to LGBT rights, mm -hmm. you know, tax reform, you name it. He, in his pieces, he has postulated that, and he's really asking the question, are we wasting our time as the left using these organizations? And overall, he sort of 
put the left overall in the crosshairs and are we all wasting our time is it possible that more than two to three people can get together and put together something in order to advance a cause and i thought that went way way too far and that discussion will be out next week what republicans are doing is that they're looking to isolate black people in particular in terms of counties that are nearly majority black the majority of those in terms of absolute number not in terms of population, but in terms of absolute number, exists within the South, exists within the old black belt, the slave belt of the United States, which is southeastern Virginia, Mm -hmm. the center of North Carolina, the center of South Carolina, Atlanta, Tennessee, parts of Kentucky, going down into Mississippi, Mm -hmm. Alabama, Louisiana, parts of Texas, Missouri, Arkansas, Mm -hmm. Florida. These places that the Democrats have completely abandoned and a lot of who we would call coastal elites have just, and their messaging more impactfully, their messaging is just completely left out in the middle of the country. Mm -hmm. They just completely abandon the black voters within those states. And in places like Georgia, Stacey Abrams and organizations on the ground that Joe Biden invested in in late 2020 and 2021 in order to push him over the finish line there becoming the first democrat since the 90s to win georgia and also being able to pick up not one but two senators in 2021 and also they're back on you know warnock and Ossoff are back on the ballot this year but they were able to push that across the finish line by those organization efforts so democrats often at least say they want our votes they at least say that they're looking to represent black people But in terms of historically oppressed populations, in terms of those who suffer most greatly from the legacy of Jim Crow and white supremacy and the backlash of Mm -hmm. white supremacist organizations in terms of the KKK and Mm -hmm. the old Democratic Party, it is very apparent to me that the Democrats don't mean what they say. And, you know, when it comes to Roe v. Wade, it's yet another instance of, well, we'll just let the states decide. And Democrats are sort of happy to play this game because they want your votes and they want you to sort of be like a captive audience. And I'm not Mm -hmm. really sure how that's going to work. In terms of Kansas, it does seem as though that Democrats were able to turn out at a higher rate than Republicans. It doesn't doesn't seem to really what carried it to 59%, but it seems that a good chunk of Republicans mm-hmm. were like, no to that. <laughs> no to anything. Yeah. Because as I noted, Richard Wolf is sort of that, if, if your two choices are keep a constitutional right or turn it over to your legislature, which may or may not do something crazy, people are going to be like, yeah, no, I'm just going to keep it as it is. We're just going to leave it as mm-hmm. it is. I don't think Republicans are A, smart enough, or B, have the leeway with people like Operation Rescue and the American Family Council and the Mike Pence's of the world to actually split the difference and be like, hey, Mm -hmm. let's just do 15, 20 weeks. You know, Glenn Youngkin in Virginia, God help us, he can get out there and he can say, you know, we can accomplish a 20 week ban. You know, I think we can do that. In Virginia, it's 24, but I think we accomplished 20 weeks. And he's like, you know, we think we can get down to 15, actually. They want to do Mississippi-style laws inside of Virginia. And it's it's disgusting because, A, it's indicative of a failure of the Democratic Party, just up and down the roster of all these issues. And really where I wanted to get with that, that first piece is because you were talking about how in Build Back Better that there were provisions that were going to expand access to health care for people in rural communities, particularly women 
poor people, LGBT people, those who would be considered vulnerable inside of Republican states. And that money from the federal government being dispersed to local governments throughout the South is really the only way that we can have any sort of recompense when it comes to getting those resources to communities. Because the way federalism works mm-hmm. is anything the feds don't do, the state does. Anything the state doesn't do, the local government does. And whatever money you do or don't have is what happens. And we see what happens mm-hmm. when it comes to schools. We see what happens when it comes to air quality on a local level. We see what happens when it comes to infrastructure on a local level. When it comes to power, <laughs> you know, when it comes yes. to anything, you see what happens with that. And the only way that really, at least in modern America, to be able to rectify that is with the power of the entire United States purse in the former Congress. So really where I'm getting with mm-hmm. that is there is no 50 state strategy among Democrats. It doesn't seem there's going to be one. There is no solid talk of that. Jamie Harrison? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. He's at the head <laughs> of the, the DNC. And there's nothing wrong with being an unsuccessful candidate in the South, being black. Okay. Even if not, you're a Democrat. It's hard to run in the South without much historical infrastructure support over the last 30, 40 years. All right. But what has this person been doing? Mostly kicking it in his home uh, on the phone and on the laptop and not fundraising. And it's not just not fundraising. If there's no fundraising, then then there's no organizing. You're not paying organizers. You're not paying for ad buys in swing seats. We are going to see the repercussions of that play out in 2022. Because in 2020, Joe Biden did everything he could to make sure he got across the finish line in places around the country. But mm-hmm. What I'm concerned about is is this narrative coming from Republicans, and we're going to get to the anti-LGBT stuff here in just a second, but this narrative coming from Republicans, especially libertarians who would say, you know, like, I don't hate gay people, I don't hate trans people, I don't hate women, you know, like, you just do whatever you want, but I am fiscally conservative, and, you know, I don't want to spend that kind of money on anything. I, I don't believe the government has a role in spending money to enhance the quote-unquote general welfare of everyday people. I don't believe that. So when it comes to being quote-unquote socially liberal but fiscally conservative, what you're actually doing is just being hurtful towards people. Like being fiscally conservative is arguably worse or as bad as being socially conservative because if you're not willing to give money to people, if you're not willing to fund community health centers, public schools, infrastructure development in terms of broadband, power, clean water, food, access to transportation, things like this. If you're Mm -hmm. heating and cooling, if you're not willing to do that, then you are putting people, LGBT people who are already in a financially precarious situation, women who are already in a precarious situation, poor people who are already in those situations at even more risk. While saying, you know, like, I support your right to marry or, you know, you can transition if you'd like or, you know, whatever it is, it's just that attack on the budget on actually funding community health centers and all and everything else I listed Mm -hmm. is as impactful as the often what the signaling is in terms of being mm-hmm. able to marry or <coughs> be discriminated against legally or you know those sorts of mm-hmm. things and so it's awful and i think that it's really feeding into a lot of this 
LGBT hate. And I really wanted to get your understanding and perspective of the narratives that Republicans are spinning now that are coming Mm -hmm. out of places like Patriot Front and the Proud Boys and a lot of the right that are showing up to drag bars across the country, that are showing up to gay bars across the country, public libraries across the country during this summer with either guns or with hordes of people outside Mm -hmm. looking to get inside and disrupt these gatherings, even though their parents are there in order to be able to defeat these quote-unquote groomers. Because if kids see people in drag or see people who are trans or see gay people at all, if they see that, then there is this panic that goes on in their mind that that means that they're going to be that way. Or at least you're trying to make it. And there's this nefarious agenda. And that goes back hundreds of years in the United States. But in particular, in its modern context, during the New Deal era, There was a lot of talk from out of FDR's, (laughs) out of FDR's White House, out of Truman's White House, Eisenhower's White House, about how gay people in Congress had elevated gay people and communists to the same threat level to the United States, to its fundamental being, to its fabric of the United States of gay people and communists. Mm -hmm. And so there is this push now to connect that history to these people are groomers, these people are coming after your kids. Yeah. You start with that. When you label people pedophiles and groomers, you're not only, of course, smearing an entire group of people with a smear that's probably the worst thing that you can say about someone, mm-hmm. particularly if it's not true. But on top of that, yeah, you are also putting a green light on not only their rights, but their lives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> on their lives. So I really want yes. to get your understanding of, of of this narrative because you grew up with so much stigma around you in Missouri. Yeah. So first of all, I will say this has always been an ongoing fight in terms of really in terms of the LGBTQ community and adding that visibility. It has been an ongoing fight even before the, the AIDS crisis, before the Stonewall riots. When when you look into areas in terms of LGBTQ individuals who within the United States, there was always that that villainization uh, or vilification of in terms of who they are, the way it has been perpetuated by protesting the Christians essentially in the 1920s um, during the second great revival there was this push of demonizing LGBTQ individuals as well as even beforehand at the start of colonialism and how indigenous individuals, uh, indigenous Americans, how they did not have any real confines of gender and gender identity, how the colonizers from Europe thought of that as very archaic, how that is not of the norm of modern day uh, gender conforms and all that stuff. And so when you go into the area, uh, especially looking into the last about 
almost 10 years because it's it's been t- almost 10 years since the Supreme Court decision on Obervale, which granted gay and lesbian couples the right to get married. We really saw that that transpire into something not only great for the LGBTQ community in terms of adding additional visibility on entertainment purposes and individuals who are in politics, individuals who are in, you know, allowing individuals in healthcare to, you know, keep that visibility, as well as we're seeing the right, they feel threatened. They feel threatened. And they did the same thing during the 60s, during the 50s, all the way back to where President Truman, uh, when he signed Missouri's first and only president, when he signed into law a lot uh, that would essentially integrate the United States Army, because beforehand, the United States Army was segregated on uh, basis of race and ethnicities. And so the right side, they have always felt this in a way that it should not be up to the United States government in terms of humanizing in the uh, various specific communities, ranging from the LGBTQ community to, to the Latino community, to the African-American community, to uh, women, they, they always want to have that narrative of everything should be privatized. And that is also what's going on in terms of like other initiatives, such as, as earlier mentioned, reproductive health, because we see a lot of community health centers, but a good high percentage of those community health services are privatized businesses. They are, they thrive on that practice because it only benefits certain groups of individuals, not all individuals, because if you go into the, into the scope of that accessibility, when you go to areas such as in North County, St. Louis, or to Southside Chicago, or to the Bronx in New York, or go to even to more affluent parts of Washington, D.C., the means of accessibility, any type of resources that will help benefit human life, it is often limited in high populated uh, groups of previously disenfranchised communities. Kind of fast forwarding, when we talk about, especially now how they are villainizing specifically the transgender community, it reminds me so much of how beforehand, when Don Eyman and the late Rush Limbaugh when they were going to their talk radio and questioned the femininity of amazing, amazing athletes, questioning the humanity of amazing individuals who have made phenomenal contributions to not only representing the United States on a scale, but also contributing within the communities, it is a hypocrisy. And I say that because when the question of womanhood is established, 
they want to go back to the colonialist standpoint of what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a man. There's no in-between, even though with the sciences that have been amazing over time and advanced, and we also got get to know, you know, more in depth of the areas of gender and gender identity and also the chemistry of how the brain, the reproductive system works and how uh, certain uh, environments and attributes work in collaboration of how you as the individual are in terms of existence. I think they refuse to acknowledge it. They refuse to see it. They want to keep that construct and it's mainly rooted to white heteronormative cisgendered supremacy of white men. Right. Anything else to that is a challenge. Because <laughs> masculinity always mm-hmm. has to be affirmed or expanded. It can never just maintain its borders. There's always got to be more and more. And also, if you look at it, like when the topic of, especially over the last few years in terms of violence of transgender women, as well as how that's not really being uplifted, that's really, in my eyes, it's very disturbing, very, very disturbing, because when you look at it, we see transphobia within the LGBTQ community. We see transphobia within the general community uh, overall. And it is rooted into the narrative of that supremacy level of we need to break down this group of individuals, this community, to make sure that we are built up to a standard where it was original. It's more of a historical complex because when you look at even within like the African-American community, we have colorism issues where if you're lighter, you might have more uh, opportunities or you have a quote unquote reasonable name or reasonable hairstyle or this or that, you'll be more qualified as opposed to somebody who may be a little more darker skin or somebody who embraces the natural curls and coils or somebody who has a beautiful African derivative name. We is an area of trying to elude into that complex of white supremacy, as well as upholding some of the principles that was instituted uh, in the past that was used to disenfranchise us to make sure that other individuals are also felt inferior. So we also have to really take a look into that historical complex and recognize, hopefully hold accountable of how the walls and some of the actions that's being uh, that's being uh, in place is not making matters better. It's making things the same as it was in the past. It has a different context to it. And generally speaking, when you're able to recognize that, that's when we're going to be able to have that equality. That's when we're going to be able to really showcase that nobody's trying to steal the spotlight of oppression really elevating those voices, really elevating the message of righting the wrongs, as well as see that we are not a threat. We are not a threat to society. The threat of society is white supremacy, and white supremacy has been on the cusp of the United States since its beginning. 
really about colonialization. You know, we often think about colonialization as, as sort of starting in the 1700s. We never think about the 1500s. We never think really about the 1600s. And there's like 250 mm-hmm. years of history before we start talking about the quote unquote, the American Revolution. And at least 170 mm-hmm. years of history, or at least between the establishment of Jamestown, the first permanent English settlement and mm-hmm. the American Revolution. Colonialization at the very outset was really a branch of the religious wars. The slave trade was really a a, a branch of the Crusades. Mm -hmm. At that point, 1453, Constantinople closes. So Constantinople falls to the Turks and it becomes Istanbul. And so at that point, all trade going into the Middle East is basically stopped because there's no ability to get it through Constantinople. And now all of that land is now held by mm-hmm. Muslims and Sikhs. And yep. so those people are not going to be trading <coughs> with the Catholics because the Catholics have sent, I don't even Mm-mm. know how many crusades at this point, out to places like Jerusalem, uh, out into <laughs> Persia, in order to be able to take land and, you know, take back the Holy Land and all of this. And it's kind of strange, just, you know, sort of overall, just sort of a reflective point, how this very small religion around jesus christ around the teachings of jesus christ went from being heavily persecuted in the roman empire to becoming within a few centuries becoming the religion of choice within all of europe and Mm -hmm. even the eastern roman empire the byzantine empire it is fascinating to happen but colonialization was was a way to be able to make up for the money that was going to be lost because a lot of the money at this point especially coming out of the Middle Ages, the financial center wasn't Brussels as it is today or London Uh-oh. or the New York Stock Exchange. It was these Venetian islands. It, it, it was islands off mm-hmm. of Italy who, and also in Cyprus and Greece who essentially had a monopoly on world trade at that point. They financed and insured yep. most of the trips between Africa and Europe, Africa and mm-hmm. Asia and the Near East. So, at that point, you need new investment opportunities. You can't go east, so where do you go? You go west. I'm going to go out there, you know, we're yep. go looking for routes to India or to other parts of the world because now we can't mm-hmm. go through Constantinople. Now we got to go, or, and we can't go through that part of the Mediterranean anymore. Now we got to go yep. all the way down through Africa. So as that happens, we, the United States, happens to get one of the more you could say militant and more authoritarian strains of Christianity called Puritanism. We get that strain mm-hmm. out here. And the, I guess you could say the colonies in, in the form of Portugal and especially in terms of Spain take this understanding of natives as Christian versus non-Christians. We're Christians, yeah. they're non-Christians. And just so happens yeah. because they're a different color than us we're going to let that play. At this point race isn't even really a thought in, the, in our Mm-mm. modern understanding. However, it's Christian versus non-Christian. But when that doesn't work out anymore, when that stops becoming a thing, when religion is no longer really able to be used in that way, when that gets out Mm -hmm. of favor because of the amount of problems that it's causing in Europe, there's a creation of whiteness. And how that has to do with anything that we're talking about today is really, it's this understanding of people understand, like what Dr. Richard Wolf was saying, that their standard of living is crumbling. And people want mm-hmm. a way to understand the world that is going to 
get them results economically. It's going to get them social rights. It's going to give them a sense that we know where the world is going and we have a formula, we have a plan that's going to get us to our next goal, right? When government no longer has that authority, when economic institutions writ large no longer have that authority, in particular when mm-hmm. you got television stations like One America News Network and Fox News and Newsmax out there, those who rise in positions of legitimacy in terms of opinion are usually those that are just the worst off. People who are looking to use that position of power for themselves, but also on top of that, usually have in their minds a way of looking at the world that is very archaic. They want to go back to something that feels like it's been taken from you. So when you go back to something, it feels like, okay, well, we're going to get something back that we used to have. And often the prescription Mm -hmm. for these things are heteronormative patriarchy. And Mm -hmm. concretely, what does that mean? That means you no longer get to control when you have kids. You no longer get to control how to regulate your menstrual cycle. You no longer get to be able, and there are people out there talking about it right now within the Christian right. They don't mm-hmm. want women to be in positions of authority. They don't want to vote them into office. They don't, they don't want women in positions of authority when it comes to the church. They don't want women in positions of authority when it comes to the home. They want men to be the predominant unit within society. They want men. Oh, yeah. And, and this idea that somehow if men were at the head of things, if we could reestablish this intelligent gentry, if we could reestablish these rulers, then then we could get back to the Republic as it was, you know, back to the George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln days. You know, those were great mm-hmm. men in those days. And we need to be raised. And they romanticized with conversations I had in the past. They romanticized the hell out of the individuals who helped founded this country or help, you know, create. Uh, uh, institutionalize our current day uh, constitutional republic and it's just like back then they were actually considered tyrants because they got pissed off at the royal family and this is kind of going to the sector of like the CRT and how you know in the groomer area this is uh, almost like a point of they want to romanticize and keep this fantasy of how this country was established and they refuse to recognize the outright violent start of this country they don't want to recognize they choose not to recognize that because they'll have to deal with the realities of how all the policies all the laws everything that has transpired how it affects now and how over time we're evolving as a nation and the constitution is a evolving document it's not this high up a document that can't be changed it can be changed they just choose not to because they know at the end of the day the stuff that was originally written into written at the time of its draft if they really look into how the Constitution was written, it was not meant for nobody except white land-owning rich men. 
you're exactly right. It's that fantasy. It's that fantasy. And it, that's what it's always been. And so when people talk about what's quote unquote woke, and the thing is, that what really bothers me about that statement is, is because unlike something like heteronormative patriarchy, things that are concrete, that can be explained and demonstrated, woke is not something that's concrete or can be demonstrated over any extended period of time. What a lot of these people Mm-mm. point to is they'll be like, oh, someone made a speech or, you know, some local city council got together and someone's training was a little ridiculous. Okay, that has absolutely nothing to do with the historical disenfranchisement and the current legal disenfranchisement and dispossession by the law and also by states and by and therefore economically of working people, of black people, of LGBT mm-hmm. people, of refugees, I mean, you name it, people who are disabled, these groups are disenfranchised and when you are met with their voice their beginning of a construction of a criticism and some elements of it some you may not agree with you may not understand or that are implemented wrong or that are you know sometimes a little ridiculous because it is Mm -hmm. one of the first times that those groups are able to get together with a voice and actually be able to implement some level of, of policy be able to get their views and their understandings across mm-hmm. that is really what they define as woke is they're able to point to these very small obscure examples around the country instead of talking about what's actually going on because yeah about white heteronormative patriarchy all the rest of that that sounds very ethereal but when you actually break it down as i stated before it's quite concrete <laughs> it, mm-hmm. hits you in the, it hits you in the face very very quickly is particularly when it begins to be able to sift down to yeah actual policy in terms of dobbs v jackson yeah. in terms of obergefell v hodges connecticut v griswold i mean you name it mm-hmm. texas yeah their fantasy of who the united states is and what kind of quote-unquote leadership we need is at the core of all of this. And yes, you're exactly right. They do feel threatened. And I think it mm-hmm. really goes back to in the United States, it has a lot to do with the three-fifths compromise, has a lot to do with the way the House yeah. is constituted, has a lot to do with the way the Senate is constituted, and also the way yeah. the president is chosen, is that so much of the United States government is made up of a minority viewpoint. It is built mm-hmm. into the Constitution to be so slanted, to be so weighted, towards property and wealth Mm -hmm. meaning those who have property and those who have wealth that is who that Mm -hmm. is slated towards and those groups of people are gonna become you know as democracy becomes larger and larger and larger as the enfranchisement Mm -hmm. of people goes from white propertied men to white men to white people to black men and white people to black people and white people and now you know they're starting to you know they're trying to roll that back too they're like, oh god you're trying to roll mm-hmm. that, that, that back too that cl- that, you know that, i swear they clutched their pearls when president obama was elected they was cl- oh uh, i swear I, the white ancestors was definitely clutching their pearls they, they were they was like oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> they were not gonna allow that to occur they were not gonna allow that and that's really where this gets to is is when you are a minority like that 
you have to come up with ways politically and you have to come up with ways socially to maintain power. And so you will come Mm -hmm. up, you might even stay within that fantasy of who this country was and what its leadership needs to be, of what its power structure should be, because it benefits you. And that view Mm -hmm. can be exported to others. And the problem is, is that that view is not only exported via corporate propaganda. We talk about this with Kim Phillips Fine in terms of businessmen's crusade against the New Deal how the religious right and how christendom in general how the church was weaponized was was changed Mm -hmm. into these corporate structures in order so that they could make as much money as possible so they could be able to afford limousines jets you know you name it they have big houses and it's it's tax-free but really where i'm getting to with this is they come up with these fantasies about who we are and we were talking about Dobbs v jackson when conservatives talk about state government what they want to do it's not just that they control many of the levers of state government within our country, right? In terms of just absolute majorities mm-hmm. and governor's mansions and also state supreme mm-hmm. courts. It's also in this idea that if they can section us off, if they can cut more parts of the country out, if they can make mm-hmm. it a smaller and smaller stage, they can mobilize their coalitions but also be able to mobilize more money in a smaller and cheaper media market and also Mm -hmm. not have competition from democratic structures because the democrats are not investing in a 50-state strategy they're investing Mm -hmm. in scaring people in the suburbs throughout the country into voting for democrats instead of actually talking about the issues that matter Instead of actually having a critique of where the society is going and what's Mm -hmm. getting lost in all of this is a non-understanding that our economic system is what is causing so much havoc, is what is causing quite a lot of this havoc. But I really wanted to get your understanding of that Dobbs v. Jackson ruling because it doesn't just impact those who can have children. In invalidating Roe v. Wade in that five to four decision, what it does is it takes away an individual's constitutional right to privacy from the federal government. That means that mm-hmm. procedures that people can be able to get, medications people can be able to take, mm-hmm. uh, the romantic relationships that people have, down to the rights when it comes to privacy in terms of your online life or in terms of your cell phone documents, all of that stuff is greatly impacted with that ruling. And it's incredibly disturbing to see that it, it was tossed aside the second that they were able to get a majority in order to do so. I really wanted to get your understanding of that, especially in the context of these Republicans putting out so much anti-trans propaganda and anti-gay propaganda. Because, of course, it's against you know white heteronormative patriarchy, all that. But really, the bee's knees of it, the other bee's knee of it would be that violation of the right to privacy and that wanting to roll Mm -hmm. things back. I just, I wanted your take on that. I wanted your understanding of it. My understanding is it is going to affect everyone. It's really going to affect individuals who already had difficulties even before the decision. It deals with individuals who are in the lower socioeconomic area of a high population of individuals who are able to bear children. But also, this was the catalyst of 
moving forward to undermining other decisions that deals with not only privacy that we have with under the... The way that it's phrased in Roe v. Wade is the first, the fourth, the fifth, the ninth, and the 14th is the way that it's phrased. Okay, thank you for that clarification. In reality, it's going to affect any all types of areas in terms of, of not only what we're able to do in, in terms of having those rights protected, but also how inexplicitly the right will be working on policing what one should do or how they, what they can or can't do. And we see it with these draconian pieces of legislation that targets LGBTQ individuals. We see it with, with the critical race theory legislation in terms of you're able to teach one aspect or you are not allowed to teach another aspect of history that, that actually allows you to critically think, analyze how how this country was founded and what roles not only our founding fathers took, but also the roles that the colonialists did to build up this nation, how what they did in the past painted a picture into the current present day, potentially the future outcomes, the continuing development of this nation. And then also we have to really look into the uh, uh, scope of the realization that specific groups who are dedicating their services, the time, the finances and these movements and these, I call them anti-movements, anti-everything except breathing. And that might be in question. <gasps> at this point, we'll look at a, a catalyst of future questions of not only uh, protections, Loving versus Virginia case, the Griswold versus Connecticut case. We're going to see uh, various serious inquiries from the right and from certain members of the United States Supreme Court, explicitly Justice Clarence Thomas, who was appointed by then President Ronald P. Reagan. There are going to be legitimate questionings of why these decisions were made, and they're going to make it to where, going down to the states, they're going to make sure that the state, certain supermajority states are going to try to supersede those decisions up until when they make that ultimate choice of nullifying various court cases or even if Congress, if push comes to if it goes back to a Republican-dominated Senate and House, how they're going to, in the laws that they might pass that questions these court cases we're going to see a cataclysmic event of how people are truly being represented. As mentioned earlier, you talked about how the legitimization of classifying slaves as three-fifths part of a human, the humanization of slaves, of indigenous Americans, of other sectors and other religious facets, finding them within society. Overall, I see this, I see it mainly here in Missouri over over the last few months. They are quick 
the far right is very quick in questioning the legitimacy of anti-discrimination because this past session in both chambers, they was adamant of adding protections of folks who who did not receive the COVID-19 vaccination. But when it came to LGBTQ individuals, which they, they, they literally said they, they was like those individuals do not need no special protections, but yet you want special protections for individuals who do not receive the COVID-19 vaccination from employment discrimination. Right. With that example, that is something that is currently on the line. That is something that they are willing to do. They are willing to undermine other individuals' existence purely to the fact that they want to maintain that superiority of power and also really institute that area of regulating other individuals who either have been systemically disenfranchised or even individuals who have not been systemically disenfranchised but are in a lower totem pole They are willing to do that out of fear of rebellion. Once people realize that they are not truly being represented, whether you are in rural Missouri that is dealing with a crumbling bridge that is about to fall to individuals in various neighborhoods in New York City who have trouble access a, a a certain subway because because they haven't did critical repairs or if you're in a hospital in southeastern georgia needing emergency surgery for after a heart attack they're gonna get that up and right now what the democrats need to do is really get to the bottom of it. really institute a true tr- strategy that really advocates for the common folk that really truly advocates for individuals who live in various communities. Because here's the thing, the cities is going to turn out regardless because they're going to have a higher population. The suburbs, they're going to turn out because they're going to have a, they have a higher population. And also they're going to, they cater to whatever is currently trending. It's the folks that who live in certain areas within that city or certain folks within in world communities or other parts of the nation that do not have that visibility, that don't really have that accessibility to vocalizing the issues that is plaguing the community. They're going to be the ones that are overshadowed because it's not cute. They want cute. They want performative. What we need is somebody who really truly sticks up for us and truly because when you are dealt with a deck of cards of disenfranchisement of disparities of inaccessibility and you have nowhere else to turn to who else can you go to I think that's a great way to put it is that it's a crisis of representation because with that minority government with with that fantasy of understanding of who we are, it clouds out the actual issues that we have of people throughout the country. And Democrats aren't willing to go to the old black belt and and really put in money into state parties in order to try and, and turn them blue, in order to get resources to people, in order to legislate for people. 
Instead, they're interested in turning those hundreds of millions of dollars over to consultants and ad mm-hmm. firms and, and voter databases. Those avenues, those activities are where they're interested in uh, because that's what they've been doing for the past 20, 30, 40 years. We need a 50-state strategy. But really, I- I'm thinking about writing something because Barack Obama lit up the White House in, in the rainbow, right? We got uh, Obergefell v. Hodges in 2015, right? We went out there and we did the thing. And it seemed like for like two minutes, like between 2014 and like 2015, like like 2016, it wasn't cool. For, it was like for five minutes, maybe a few months, where it just wasn't cool to be homophobic anymore. Like it just, it was not, it wasn't acceptable. It just wasn't cute. You gotta stop mm-hmm. that. Like, but like that's over. We've moved past that. And Republicans were out there like, you know what? We're going to surrender on this. We're just going to lie down for a little while. We lost, you know, we're just going to let the Supreme Court do what it does. And, you know, we're going to move forward. And they decided to lie down for a little while. And then they got back right back. I'm surprised you because now yep. they just they mm-hmm. pulled it all right back out of the hat. The grooming mm-hmm. stuff, the pedophilia stuff, the anti-trans stuff. I mean, you name it. They're going out there with it. They're throwing it all against yep. the wall in this hope that it's going to work in, in, in the hope that they can mm-hmm. still, that, that that nerve is still there, that that line of attack in American politics is still has purchase. And when it comes to monkeypox, what really gets me about this, and you know, I said this last year is we shouldn't have expected COVID to be treated any differently than something like climate change. It's going to be rationing because the United States government has known about climate change for like 30, 40, 50 years. These oil companies have known about it for 30, 40, 50 years and have done nothing except try to enrich themselves, these companies. And they've tried to distort the truth and hide the truth and marginalize the truth and push people out. That's what they're looking to do, mm-hmm. what they've done. And the U.S. government, because they are so beholden to corporations and corporate donors, and because so many of them are so rich and invest in a lot of these companies, they are vested in this idea that, no, we are not going to address climate change. And that comes through in all different sorts of ways about, as we said before, about wokeness and all the rest of this bullshit. Because as a, anyone who can explain to me what woke means outside of like some, outside of a pejorative mm-hmm. for what SJW used to mean, I, I would be curious to know because I just can't think of what that definition really is. What I'm trying to really get at with this is, is that with monkeypox, with Joe Biden in office, with Pete Buttigieg at the head of... Of dot at the head of Department of Transportation, with people like Tammy Baldwin in the Senate, and you know LGBT people being out and proud and having some representation, there mm-hmm. is still like there is a disease that is beginning to ravage our community, and mm-hmm. it was telegraphed for months. It was known for months that this mm-hmm. disease was out in the world, was out in Europe, was out in Africa. It's been in Africa for decades, and now it has gotten yeah. to the United States with a healthcare system that is completely in tatters. And the Joe Biden administration just sat around for hundreds, if not thousands, of cases and just waited for what I don't know. I don't. I don't know what the wait was for. I don't know what anyone was waiting for. Mm-hmm. But the idea that we were not pulling vaccines out of the stockpile for smallpox in May. 
and we're just now talking about doing it and it's damn near the middle of august is ludicrous to me it is ludicrous to me mm-hmm. and representation and being out there with our corporate sponsors Coors beer and electronic arts and everybody else under the sun you know turning their logos to rainbow mm-hmm. for june there is no it didn't save us it did not save us from yet another Mm-mm. pandemic affecting the lgbt community it just it didn't save us and it's so corporate I, pride it's the capitalism of pride and that's what the root of it is even before like the Oberfeld versus Hodges case even before discussion during the 2004 presidential debate with baby George Bush and John Kerry when the debate about same-sex marriage should be legalized in the United States even beforehand there was a villain, even on a corporate side, uh, especially during the height of the HIV and AIDS epidemic, there was that villainization against the LGBTQ community. And it wasn't until when individuals who were the upper, as I call it, the upper echelon of these corporations, of these firms, when they became heads of these companies, that's when they started to make that change. And also another reason why they made that change is because they know that if the LGBTQ doesn't give us their money, we might fail because they know that money is something that they hold. I mean, we see it now with Juneteenth. I mean, hell, Walmart, you know, be, they'd be having a full collection of everything for Juneteenth. Look, and look, then you know, look, and Aunt Jackie was out there saying, "I bet not see one mattress sale." You hear me <laughs> on Juneteenth? Not one mattress sale. I don't want to see nothing on Juneteenth. And here they go. It's the capitalistic approach to things because everybody in government in the United States they pride themselves of being affiliated with that capitalistic mindset of making sure that companies and private firms are uplifted to benefit the economy of the United States, not upholding and benefiting humans, the citizens of the United States of America. And the problem that I have with, not only with pride, because I admit, I I mean, I'm going to be honest, I, I still, in a way, celebrate pride, but I do it in a different form. Because right now, there is individual, like here in Missouri, there's individuals that still can be denied housing because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. There's individuals that can be, that still be denied employment because of their sexual orientation and gender identity. There's individuals that can be denied even critical health services because of how they identify. There's people that's literally being killed because of how they identified. And we have individuals ranging from those in the government to those in private arena that is like, oh, that's nothing. Just give us our money. Because this was the same response in uh, uh, almost 
50 years ago, this was the same response that the United States government had when HIV was starting to become prevalent. When the first case in San Francisco, when patient zero went to the hospital for an unknown bout of cancer, then President Reagan, when he was in office, he batted his eye. And then over time, more people got infected, more people started to die. And it wasn't until the mid-90s that there was actually something instituted in terms of a strategic plan in alleviating the horrible, horrible repercussions of HIV and AIDS. And we're seeing it now Uh, with technology and medicine advancing each and every single day with amazing, phenomenal medical researchers and scientists working day in and day out. There's no excuse. There is no excuse for... For any type, for any type of even reconsideration of treatment action of of any type of protocol that's needed to really get this addressed, because I mean, even though the illness is not deadly like COVID nineteen, it is still up there in terms of contagion like COVID nineteen, right. This is something serious because you can, even though it's not a life-threatening type of virus, in terms of long-term issues, it's, again, a waterfall. Right now, more than ever, what needs to be done is we need to not only inform the public that this is not an STI, a sexually transmitted illness, making sure that we don't have these large gatherings and parties and whatnot where that contagion level monkeypox have, making sure that that doesn't get elevated. There's a lot of areas that needs to be done. And I think overall, the way they're treating it as it's, it's, it's kind of minuscule, it's disturbing. It's very disturbing. And I, especially with areas where they have seen the biggest population such as in the like in New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, in Washington DC. I've seen on Twitter individuals they would schedule an appointment to get the immunization and then two seconds it feels like two seconds later they have to reschedule another appointment because they're out. It's horrible. In other countries that have been around before capitalism, countries like I would say the UK, but places like Japan, places like Korea, places like China, places like India that have been around for thousands of years that have an understanding of the world that's outside of market capitalism. Because the United States doesn't mm-hmm. have any pre-capitalist institutions. It is Ooh. largely a capitalist institution. It's kind of like what Wyatt was saying in, 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 our, in our talk about transportation in particular when it comes to cars is just a certain level of death is is factored into mm-hmm. our everyday life a certain level of yes death is factored into health insurance a certain level of death is factored into transportation in terms of cars a certain level of death is factored in when it comes to health care and so that sort of sitting around twiddling thumbs is instinctual to capitalism until there's a crisis until something 
until something reaches a critical mass, press a lever to finally do something about it. Until that mm-hmm. moment, there's not going to be anything done about it until that critical mass is reached in order for capital to be invested, in order for money to be spent. Yeah. Instead of an mm-hmm. idea, instead of uh, an understanding about health policy being health policy. And that's what it is. I think that's really what gets down to the bottom of it. And I think you're exactly right when it comes to this corporate pride stuff. And that's exactly what a lot of pride has become is after people were able to adopt kids and get married, it was like, you know, we're done here. You know, and and Mm -hmm. before that, instead of liberation marches, we started having pride marches. We started wanting to be sponsored. And the only other institution people really know of outside of their government and the only institution we really have to be around every day outside of our government is private capitalist institutions like corporations and so Mm -hmm. once we have our quote representation there and we've been able to get some sort of legal protections we feel like we've stormed the gates and we've been able to get what it is that we wanted instead of taking part the disassembly and the reckoning with those institutions and how they have mm-hmm. contributed and how they contribute to to what amounts to homophobia, to, to what amounts to uh, mm-hmm. to democide. It's really, again, as you said before, this happened before and we're seeing it again. And this is not under Ronald Reagan. This is under Joe Biden. And even though many people would say there's no difference, there is a difference in tone. Like Ronald Reagan mm-hmm. wants to abolish the Department of Labor flat out. He yep. in the office wanted to do that. Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, LGBT representation in government did not save us. I don't even think Pete Buttigieg has even uttered the word monkeypox. It is very disturbing to me, again, just like you stated, just to see no real talk about it, no discussion of that pandemic that's beginning to spread in the LGBT community. And what's even more disturbing is how it's played into by a lot of these right wingers in terms of like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates and other mm-hmm. people who are insinuating, you know, gay guys, gay people are giving monkeypox to kids because, you know, gay people are perverts and they're having sex with your kids. I mean, that's really what it is about is it's always about the demonization of, of course, LGBT people, but of course, human expression, just that ability to be yourself. And of course, that goes back to that heteronormative white patriarchy and hierarchy. And we've talked about that. You know, I think it's really disturbing to see that. I'm going to write that piece. (laughs) It is so frustrating to me. The idea that, especially, it's just, you know, these white gays. And that's really what kills me about it, is these white men. And a lot of white Mm -hmm. gay women who were just like, okay, our goal post-HIV is marriage equality and kids. And that's it. And that's it. And then we all Mm -hmm. go home. And then we all go home. Like, we're not going to push for anti-discrimination policies at work. We're not going to push for, like, special government programs when it comes to, like, actually educating and when it comes to sex education for LGBTQ kids. Talk about, like, the rates of homelessness among LGBTQ people and LGBTQ kids in particular. You got people like Mm -hmm. Lynn Youngkin out here talking about just the other day saying that kids should be outed to their parents especially trans kids like should be outed to their parents there isn't a facet of any kid's life that a parent shouldn't have access to it's kind of disturbing is this totalitarian view own you yep and especially with in various households you know you because the rate of 
homelessness for the age range of from 14 to 24. That rate of LGBTQ homelessness in that age range is beyond comprehension how high it is. Yeah, and it's despicable. And we'll see an increase of that with these policies because of this propagation from the right that, oh, well, the way mainstream media, this and that is affecting our children. Children knows what, what's going on within themselves. From right. I know from a very young age, it, it, it didn't take up until I turned 25 to realize that I was a trans woman. But at the same time, I was like, this, okay, is this something within myself that I have to come to terms with? I was grateful enough and kind of going to my personal story. I was grateful enough to have a household that was affirming and loving because especially for individuals who are black, Latinx, Asian American, Pacific Islander, they came out and their household is not a safe household. That's their life on on the line. Yeah. And that's their future. And it's disturbing because people like Glenn Young can really will go out there and say stuff like that. And they and they let and they let it out of the bag always. Because that's really what mm-hmm. they want to do. They they don't want to affirm it in public and they want to be able to punish it in private. And like you were saying earlier, there are many people who are just not held to account. And that's sort of the essence of what we call conservatism, which is the law is created for in-groups and out-groups. The in-groups are protected yep. by the law, but not bound by it. The out-groups mm-hmm. are bound by the law, but not protected by it. I think that's really the freak out when it comes to you know Republicans and Donald Trump. But that's for another day. I really do appreciate your time. Kendall Martinez, right? This is, of course, the former Democratic candidate for the Missouri House District 5. I really do appreciate your time. Thank you so much for being here. You're so welcome. And thank you for having me on here.